Thanks for joining us today on our BIV Daily Podcast from the newsroom of the Business of Vancouver publication on Critical Point, publisher and editor-in-chief. British Columbians are into an election campaign today for an October 24th vote. John Horgan, the Premier, says he needs a four-year mandate to tackle the pandemic. His party standing is better in the polls than it is in the legislature in a minority government with the Greens, but it's worth examining this party's prospects. With Mario Canseco, president of Research Co., a public research firm, he writes for us at Glacier Media, a regular on this podcast. Good to have you with us. Great to be here, Kirk. I uh, listened to the Premier quite carefully today, and he said that he's not doing it for himself. He's doing it for the people of British Columbia. Um, I think a lot of people would throw some snark on that. Uh, but what, what's your feeling? Does he need a mandate? I think he already has one. You know, it's a situation where you don't really see the Green Party voting against the NDP because of the deal that they signed it's not in the best interest of the BC Liberals to try to topple the government because they have a leader who is not particularly popular and their standing is not as good as it used to be a couple of years ago. So there might be no need for this. You know, it essentially buys them another year in that sense. And it also enables them to bring in new blood. There's a lot of people who are retiring. Uh, but other than that, um, it's not something that is desperately necessary at this stage. Yeah, the Premier uh, said he agonized over it. He wrestled with it a long time. He obviously was getting some conflicting information about whether it was a good idea or not. But you study political scientists as much as anyone would. Does does the kind of early criticism about calling an election at what seems to be an inappropriate time stick come election day? It can go both ways. You know, we have an example at the federal level when Stephen Harper's conservatives toppled Paul Martin's liberals at the end of 2005, and the election that happened in early 2006 with a campaign that spanned the holidays uh, led to Stephen Harper becoming prime minister. There was also Jim Prentice uh, back in 2015 who decides to engineer his own demise uh, because he feels that the opposition isn't ready to tackle him. And Rachel Notley goes from fourth place to becoming the next head of government in Alberta. So it depends not only on how people feel about it immediately, but also how you connect during the actual campaign. Yeah. I mean, but you would, of course, be studying not just what your your own polls are telling you, but what others are telling you, uh, other polls are saying. And and I don't see anything in, in the reading so far that indicates that the Liberals are anywhere better than perhaps somewhere around 25 seats as we start this campaign, 25 out of 87 seats, which would be kind of a, not just a landslide, maybe even close to a wipeout on them. So what what would the Liberals need to do in this campaign in order to to basically come back to close to where they were last time and winning more seats than the NDP did? Well, one of the keys here is to continue to talk about economic management. It's always been an issue where the Liberals tend to do better than the NDP. It's an issue that helps uh, everybody who's in the business community. Uh, they need to establish that connection. Also ensure that those conservatives uh, who might be flirting with voting for the BC conservatives, if they actually run candidates in every riding, uh, can, go, can come back into the liberal fold. Uh, you know, one of the key aspects here is how do you present Andrew Wilkinson as somebody who could conceivably be the next head of government in an election that takes away the opportunity to have town hall meetings, meet and greets, kissing babies, shaking hands. Uh, it's becoming more like a U.S. presidential election. This is the person that you're voting for and some of the messages you'll get through social media or through some advertisements, but you're not going to be able to have that. And they need to establish that emotional connection with tools that they 
aren't really used to using. You know, liberals are used to filling up a gym with people and bringing some candidates to shake hands. Uh, this is something that they can't do it right now. Well, Rudy, Mario, we're experiencing though quite a different campaign than we ever have. This is, I think, going to be the largest campaign uh, during the pandemic uh, in North America. Um, how does that help a government or hurt a government in try and, and opposition? in terms of the dynamic that we might see in the way of, of a campaign, the ability to get a message out, or the ability to, frankly, stop a slide. Well, one of the keys here is that you take away one of the things that the BC Liberals do very well, which is the, the really local campaign, you know, talking to candidates, shaking hands, filling up a gym, that is taken away from them because of the pandemic. Everything is going to be printed. We're used to getting uh, very nice brochures with the picture of the candidate and the family and maybe a couple of slogans. And now we're getting more information through the mail, probably directing us to social media or a website to learn more about specific candidates. And it really turns this more into an election where you're choosing between the current premier and somebody who could conceivably take his place. Uh, it makes it more complicated, particularly from a local angle. Uh, you know, we, we haven't really seen a lot of people who are going to be doing campaigns the old fashioned way because you don't want to be seen as somebody who's jeopardizing our role in curbing this uh, pandemic. Um, but it's, it's ultimately a situation where the importance of the leader and the things that they say is going to take precedence. We're not going to have a lot of uh, events uh, where the leader goes to your riding, shakes your hands, and meets some other people. It's not going to happen that way. And in terms of the, the media coverage in this case here, uh, you know, what will we see in the way, if, if there isn't the same sort of access media have to leaders and to candidates, um, you know, what is there left here? Well, what we have is a lot of social media, a lot of uh, electronics. You know, there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out what is going to happen in this election without the tools that we used to have in olden times. Uh, what's interesting now, and, and this is a difference between 2013 and 2017, when social media was only used by a handful of activists and a lot of young people. Now you have more Generation Xers, more baby boomers who are active on social media, and they are going to require those channels to get to know the candidates and to try to figure out who they're going to be supporting. It's a different ballgame there, but it's also crucial not only for the parties to get those messages out there in those venues, but also to have something that is consistent and to look into some of the people who are important. It's not only the uh, Twitter account for, this, for a specific political party that needs to do things, but also people close to them who need to be following that line. And it's uh, going to be more difficult now because there's more scrutiny and there's going to be more people who are going to go to social media to try to figure out who to vote for. And with the high emotional quotient that uh, occurs on social media, of course, you get these uh, extremes, the extreme on one side being hope, the extreme on the other side being fear. Um, how, how likely is it that the Liberals can play this hand of fear of the NDP and providing hope on their part in order to essentially resuscitate their own fortunes? Well, it's something that works very well, particularly for the older voters. If you're over 55 and you still have memories of what happened during the 1990s with the NDP, it's a message that Andrew Wilkinson can take to you and say, you know, we don't want to go back to something like this. We need to keep them in check. We need to have a mandate uh, that is clearer. And we need a lot of busy liberals to make sure that these guys don't get in there and do everything that they want to do. 
uh, that's important for that particular group. But there's also a lot of Generation Xers, a lot of millennials who didn't really grow up with the NDP in power, uh, don't have memories of that. Um, mm -hmm. It's a type of campaign that is going to start to go stale as the time progresses. Uh, but ultimately, I think there's also a very grave concern for many residents of all ages on, on the deficit side of things. You know, what are we going to get after all of this spending? How are we going to pay this back if and when this COVID-19 pandemic ends? And that economic message always helps the liberals. I don't think they should turn this into a campaign related to charisma or, or you know, essentially talking about specific plans that they would do differently. Uh, they need to connect with voters on the issue that they always do well on, and that is economy and jobs. Now, the connection, though, is often dependent on what kind of leader you have. And uh, in an examining uh, all the public research that's out there, I mean, my own conclusion is that uh, it, it, the parties themselves may not be that far apart, but the leaders certainly are. So how does Andrew Wilkinson shape up his campaign in order to narrow that gap that he has on the personal side as a leader with John Horgan? Well, the numbers have been a little bit better for him. Uh, when we asked back in May, we had 48% of residents uh, who felt that he was doing a good job as leader of the opposition. Uh, that is higher than any number Christy Clark ever got. So it tells you a little bit about the way in which he's connecting. But it's not necessarily something that is going to bring more voters into the fold. You might like Andrew Wilkinson, but you may not want to vote for the VC Liberals. That is one of the problems. The handling of the pandemic has been remarkably successful. We have 83% of BC residents who are happy with what the government has done, the highest in Canada. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to get 83% of the vote, uh, but ultimately it connects the issue in a way in which you're essentially reminding people that we're not in the same boat as, let's say, for the sake of argument, Washington State, uh, because of what has been done by the government that is in place right now. Um, ultimately, I think it's all about trying to connect in a different way and also getting people uh, who are dissatisfied with things. You know, there's one thing about being upset with the election being called, but we haven't seen the former mayors or the former councillors deciding that they want to run for the VC Liberals because they are outraged at the handling of the NDP's uh, issues. So unless we start to see that in the next couple of weeks, it's going to be difficult to establish this as a movement. Yeah. Maria, always good talking to you. Always good to have you on the podcast. Thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you, Kirk. Anytime. Ariel Canseco is president of Research Co. It's a public research firm. He writes for us also at Glacier Media. Check out his work at BIV and elsewhere on the Glacier Media chain. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief of Business of Vancouver. Thanks a lot for watching. Join us again. Bye.